So I just got into my office and made myself a cup of coffee. And I'm turning on my equipment here and I'm just going to click on record. I am not going to think too much about this. I've learned that the more that I think, the less that I do. So welcome to Chronicles of a Psychology Professor, episode 5. The other day I had a, a very interesting and enjoyable social psychology class. All right? I thought the topic was extremely interesting and I thought the conversation was very enjoyable. I know that's my perspective and my students might beg to differ, right? But we talked about the interplay or the relationship between attitudes and behavior. And we also touched on the concept of cognitive dissonance. And this has had me thinking for, for a week, a week and a half already, and it's a very interesting topic. So I decided to just share it with you to the best of my ability here. Um, what is cognitive dissonance? Well, cognitive dissonance occurs when we hold two contradicting realities in our mind. And by holding those two contradicting realities, we experience a certain level of discomfort, be it psychological, emotional, and even physical. So when we are experiencing cognitive dissonance, we do everything in our power to get rid of it. Let me give you an example. When you Google cognitive dissonance, most of the examples are going to bring up smoking, okay? And let me, I'm going to try to give you an example here. So, um, smoking is bad for me. However, I smoke. So that's two contradicting realities that I am holding at the same time. I believe that smoking is bad for me. However, I smoke. So my beliefs and my behaviors contradict each other. Even though I truly believe that smoking is bad for me, I engage in that behavior, in the behavior of smoking. So here, I am experiencing cognitive dissonance. And I am experiencing a certain level of discomfort, right, because of this. So I need to do something to get rid of this discomfort. And I can do one of three things. Okay, the first thing I can do is change my belief. Okay, I believe that smoking is bad for me. However, I engage in the behavior of smoking. I'm experiencing cognitive dissonance, a certain level of psychological, emotional, and even physical discomfort. I need to get rid of this because I'm not wired to live with these contradictions. So the first thing I can do is change my belief. In other words, I can convince myself that smoking isn't really that bad, that all these studies that have provided evidence of the danger of smoking are really biased studies, okay? They're not very truthful, and you know what? They're, they're exaggerated, because look at all the people that smoke in the world, and most of them are okay. And a lot of these people have been smoking for a long, long time, and they are 
okay, I've been smoking for a while, you know, and I'm pretty good looking. I, I'm, I'm okay, right? So smoking is really not that bad. Right. I solved the problem of cognitive dissonance. Remember, the contradiction was that I believed that smoking was bad. However, I engaged in the behavior of smoking. Ah, discomfort. How did I get rid of the discomfort? The first thing I did was I changed my belief. I now don't believe that smoking is bad. I actually think that uh, all this evidence against smoking is biased and exaggerated. So I solved my problem of cognitive dissonance. Another thing I can do when I have this dilemma in my head is I can change the behavior. Right? So I believe that smoking is bad, so I'm gonna stop smoking. And at the moment that I stop smoking, I solved my cognitive dissonance. I am not experiencing discomfort anymore, or at least discomfort based on the dissonance, right? I might be going through some withdrawal symptoms due to not smoking, right? So my second option to get rid of dissonance is to actually change the behavior. I believe smoking is bad. I engage in the behavior of smoking. So I'm going to stop smoking. And there's no more contradiction going on in my mind. The third way of doing this, of getting rid of cognitive dissonance, is to add a new belief, add a new cognition. We call these, you know, uh, justifications or, or rationalizations. So I believe smoking is bad for me. I engage in the behavior of smoking. However, we're all going to die someday. That is inevitable. I am going to die someday. So if I die doing something that I enjoy, well, that's how I want to die. I want to die on my own terms. So I'm going to continue smoking. So see what I just did there? I added a justification or a rationalization. I still believe smoking is bad. I'm still engaging in the behavior of smoking. However, I threw in, <clears throat> I threw some curveballs, right? I threw some justifications, some rationalizations. Hey, I'm going to die anyway. Might as well die on my own terms. Die doing something that I truly enjoy. So kind of to summarize, cognitive, cognitive dissonance is when we hold two opposing realities, right? Uh, we have a belief, but that belief contradicts our behavior. Or you can look at it uh, the other way around. My behavior contradicts my belief, so I have to change something. Either I change my belief to continue engaging in my behavior, or I change my behavior to continue maintaining my belief, or I add some sort of justification or rationalization to continue um, with that contradiction. Let's use another example. Why not? Uh, eating donuts is unhealthy. I truly believe that eating donuts is unhealthy. However, I engage in the behavior of eating donuts. So you guys see the cognitive dissonance, the contradiction? So I can do one of three things. I can change my belief, I can change my behavior, or I can uh, add a new belief or a new cognition. So I believe eating donuts is unhealthy. However, I engage in the behavior of eating donuts. Let me change my belief. 
I need to convince myself that eating donuts is really not that bad, especially if you eat those really light and fluffy donuts. Those are not as bad as other uh, uh, donuts, right? And then donuts have holes in them, so I'm really not eating a whole piece of uh, of bread. It has a hole in it, so that hole actually makes a donut smaller. You know, its mass, uh, its volume is is less than what it looks like because there's a big hole in the middle. So you know, it, it's not that bad. You know, if they're fluffy and light and have a, a hole in the middle. <laughs> then eating donuts is, is not, not unhealthy. Actually, we all need a certain dose of carbs and sugars in our diet. You know, that gives us energy and we need energy to survive. So, you know, eating donuts is not unhealthy. Boom. Solve the cognitive dissonance. I changed my belief. Now I can continue engaging in my behavior of eating donuts. Another way or another thing that I can do is I can change my behavior. I believe that eating donuts is unhealthy, so let me stop eating donuts. So there, I solved the cognitive dissonance. I stopped eating donuts so I can, you know, continue with my belief. Or, you know, I can add a justification or a rationalization. Eating donuts is unhealthy. However, I engage in the behavior of eating donuts. But you know what? I go to the gym once in a while, so I actually burn those specific donut calories. You know, I, I'm drinking a lot of water, so that helps flush all those extra calories. You know, I deserve a donut once in a while. It's not like if I eat a dozen, I only eat half a dozen, etc., etc. There's millions of justifications and rationalizations so that we can continue with our behavior. So I don't want to be too repetitive, although <laughs> I tend to repeat myself, especially when I'm by myself talking into a microphone. But cognitive dissonance, two contradicting realities. You have a belief and a behavior that contradict each other. The behavior doesn't match the belief or the belief doesn't match the behavior. So in order to get rid of that cognitive dissonance, you can either change the belief, right, to continue with the behavior. You can change the behavior to continue with a belief, or you can add some sort of justification, right? Some sort of rationalization, so you can continue doing both of those contradicting things. And, and, and the concept of cognitive dissonance leads us to kind of reflect on the interaction between attitudes and behavior. But first, I need to define what I mean by attitude. We all have this conception of what an attitude is, but in social psychology, we have a very specific definition of an attitude. So in social psychology, attitudes are defined as beliefs and feelings related to a person or an event, okay? So in social psychology, attitudes are defined as a set of beliefs and feelings related to about a person or and events. So that's what I mean when I talk about attitudes and behavior. Well, I don't think we have to define, you know, behavior. We all know what that is. And when I started class, I read a quote from our textbook. I use a textbook called Social Psychology by Myers and Twenge. And um, they quote Ralph Waldo Emerson. And the quote is, is very interesting. Um, it says that the ancestor of every action is thought. The ancestor of every action is thought. So the popular belief is that behavior, 
uh, pardon me, the popular belief is that attitudes predict behavior. Okay, that's the popular long-standing belief throughout history. <clears throat> the belief or, or, or the idea that attitudes predict behavior. The ancestor of every action is thought. And I love because they start their paragraph with a very cool question. Let me read it. Uh, here's a question. It says, how much does what we are on the inside predict what we do on the outside? Right? Here's the idea that attitudes predict behavior. That first comes thought and then from the thought comes action. And the question is, how much does what we are on the inside predict what we do on the outside? I'm going to uh, allow myself here to continue reading because this is good. Uh, philosophers, theologians, and educators uh, speculate about the connection between attitude and action, character and conduct, private word and public deed. Underlying most teaching, counseling, and parenting is a simple assumption. Our private beliefs and feelings determine our public behavior. That's the common and simple assumption um, that is made. Our private beliefs and feelings determine our public behavior. So if we want to change behavior, we must first change hearts and minds. <laughs> Uh, again, that's from my social psychology textbook. So the common belief or the popular belief is that um, the ancestor of every action is thought. So first comes thought and then comes action. Or as we're saying it in the concept of the interplay between attitudes and behavior, the common most popular belief is that attitudes predict behavior. So if we want to, following this, uh, this assumption... If we want to change behavior, we must first change minds and hearts. So if we change our thoughts or we change our attitudes, then we can change our behavior. This is even, this is even biblical. If you allow me to get a little bit biblical, the Apostle Paul wrote in one of his letters that it's, I'm paraphrasing. All right. So don't criticize me. If you change the way you think, you're going to change the way you live. And, I, and if I would ask you guys if you agree with this, I think most of you would agree with this. Hmm. I wonder. But there's a lot more to it. Okay. For example, we all know that texting and driving is dangerous. Uh, we've been given a lot of information about the risks of texting and driving, yet many people continue to text while driving, right? Um, <clears throat> again, a lot of people have been educated on the dangers of smoking. There's a lot of information on the dangers of smoking. Even when you buy the cigarette packets, the packets give you information that, you know, smoking can cause cancer. And there's a lot of evidence that smoking does cause cancer, yet a lot of people, most people, continue smoking, right? Now more than ever with the pandemic, we've learned the importance of washing our hands. And there's flyers and posters everywhere, you know, directing us to wash our hands. And I think the directive is to wash our hands for 20 seconds, 
right? Um, yet how many of us actually count the seconds and how many of us actually wash our hands, first of all, and how many of us that do wash our hands, uh, how many of us actually spend 20 seconds washing our hands? So even though we're given information to change our thoughts and our hearts, this new information doesn't necessarily change our behaviors. I don't know if I'm making sense, right? So if, if the ancestor of every action is thought and you want to change behavior, then you provide information to change the person's thoughts. But even though we have all this information about tons of things, we know a lot, we many times still act <clears throat> in contradiction to what we no. So I'm starting to question if actually changing minds and hearts is the best way of changing behavior, right? In the 1960s, we had a personality by the last name of Festinger, and he kind of made some observations that contradicted this popular belief. He observed that changing, changing people's attitudes often hardly affects their behaviors. So he's saying that even when we change a person's beliefs and a person's thoughts, even when we provide people with information and we educate them, these new uh, thoughts, these new attitudes hardly ever influence behavior. So Festinger believed that, believed the attitude-behavior relation works the other way around. And I love this quote. With our behavior as the horse and our attitudes as the cart. So, the popular belief is that attitudes, which is our beliefs and feelings about a person, about an event. The common belief is that our attitudes predict our behavior. And if you want to change behavior, then you change your attitude. Uh, Festinger here is saying something a little bit different. He's saying, nah, uh, uh, that's not how it works. Because even if you manage to change your attitudes, your behavior hardly ever changes. You know, there's some examples here of some, st of some studies, for example. Students' attitudes towards cheating bore little relation to the likelihood of their actually, of they, of their actually cheating. <clears throat> So students, you know, have a specific attitude towards cheating. If you talk to students, most, if not all students are going to say cheating is bad. So their attitudes towards cheating is that cheating is bad. However, most students will engage in some sort of cheating. So even though they have the attitude, their behavior doesn't reflect or doesn't match their attitude. Also in relation to faith and to church, attitudes towards the church were only modestly linked with weekly worship attendance. So a lot of people, you know, have an attitude or a belief about God and about church, but very few of us actually live up to the standards of our beliefs. We believe it, we even preach it, right? But we don't do it. We don't practice it. You know, that famous saying, practice what you preach. Well, a lot of us preach, but we don't necessarily practice what, what we preach. Here, here's a cool one. Uh, Self-described racial attitudes provided little clue to behaviors in actual situations. 
Many people say they are upset when someone makes racist remarks, yet when they hear racism, many respond with indifference. So most of us, you know, constantly say that we can't stand racism. That's our attitude, our belief. We're, we're against racism. But when we, when we see this racism happen or this discrimination happen, we do absolutely nothing about it. And this is what Festinger is arguing, you know. Attitudes have very little effect on behavior. Most of us believe one thing and do another. That's why he says, instead of thinking that attitudes predict behavior, he, he, he wants to say the opposite, right? That be, our behaviors predict our attitudes, okay? So the attitude-behavior relation works the other way around. Our behaviors are the horse and our attitudes are the cart. And when we look at cognitive dissonance, we can try kind of start to understand this, right? Because when you want to get rid of cognitive dissonance, you, you have one of three options. You can change the belief, you can change the behavior, or you can add a new belief, a rationalization, a justification. Which of the three do you think is easier? I asked this in class the other day. And everybody agreed that one in three is easier. It's easier to change our belief or it is easier to add uh, a new belief, a justification and a rationalization. We all agreed that the most difficult thing to do is to change behavior. And I think most of us right now in this moment have to agree that changing behavior is very difficult. For example, I started going to the gym. I know you can't tell. Uh... And, you know, I truly believe in the importance of exercise. I need it for my health. I'm getting older. I want to be as healthy as I possibly can for my kids, especially for my daughter, right? So I understand. I have this really cool attitude. I like going to the gym. I like working out. I know it's important. However, it's not happening as often as it should. I also understand about eating a healthy diet. I have an attitude about it. It's important to eat healthy. However, I am really not doing it. So it's easier to change your mind and your attitudes than it is to change behavior. How many behaviors have, been, have you been trying to change for a long time and you haven't been able to change them, right? So it is easier to change our beliefs than it is to change our behaviors. That's why Festinger is saying that, how did he say it? That behavior is the horse and our attitudes are the cart, right? Um, because it's so hard to change behavior, we rather change our beliefs, our attitudes. So behavior actually results in attitude change rather than attitude resulting in behavioral change. So then, how the hell do we change? How do we make changes in our life? I don't know. And if I did know, I would write a book about it. And I would probably be a multi-millionaire at this point because everybody wants to figure out how to change. And if I figure that out, then, you know, I can make a lot of money off of it. However, I want to point you in the direction of a gentleman by the name of Dan Ariely. Dan Ariely, look him up, Google him, go to his website, see his videos. He brings up a really cool point about achieving change. 
And uh, obviously, if you want to learn more about it, search him up, Dan Ariely. There's uh, there's YouTube videos, there's articles, or web pages. I think he has a couple of books or or a book. I can't remember, right? So he uses a metaphor, the metaphor of the rocket ship, in order to talk about achieving change. And in order to get a rocket ship a rocket ship into space, you need two things. One is very obvious. You need fuel. You need enough fuel to get the rocket ship out there into space. But not only fuel, you also need to reduce friction as much as possible. All right? So to achieve change, we need to increase motivation, have enough motivation, which is the fuel, and we need to decrease friction. So now... I've always known about the motivation part. You know, we all know that we need to be motivated to achieve things, right? And there's different types of motivation. There's intrinsic motivation. There's extrinsic motivation. There's a lot of motivators out there. So I think we're, we are all very uh, familiar with the concept of motivation. In order to change, we need to be motivated. Um, when it comes to performing... Uh, job duties that are very mechanical and repetitive, money is a very good motivator. But when it comes to performing tasks that require a higher cognitive ability, right, or cognitive activities, money is no longer a very good motivator. People now search for mastery, for autonomy, uh, for purpose. So there's a lot of different motivations out there. A lot of them are intrinsic, internal. A lot of them are extrinsic or external. There's a lot of reasons to do things. So motivation is the fuel. And yes, we need the fuel to achieve change. The rocket ship cannot get into outer space without sufficient fuel. So there is no doubt about it. We need to be motivated. But what blew my mind, and I'm still thinking about it, is motivation is not enough. You also need to reduce friction. It doesn't matter how much fuel that's, that rocket ship has. It needs to find a way of getting past our atmosphere, right? And you need to find ways of reducing the friction so that it can get to where it's going. So when you want to achieve change, not only do you need motivation, you need to reduce friction. And he gives, he gives a, in one of his videos, he gives a really cool example. So he's talking about, uh, he compares various European countries in terms of uh, uh, their popula the population's uh, willingness to engage in organ donation. Okay, so he shows a chart with various uh, European countries. And he shows the percentage of the population of each country that engages in organ donation. So to the left, he has some countries that whose population pretty much does not engage in organ donation. I mean, a very low number of people, you know, 10%, 15%, 20% of the people in those, in those countries actually are organ donors. Then to the right, he has a, a set of countries where most of the population, 98 to 100% of the population, are organ donors. So then he starts comparing the countries. What's the difference between these countries? Why 
uh, are, are some countries very low in organ donation and other countries are very high in organ donation. So he brings up the form that is completed in the, in the Department of, of Motor Vehicles, you know, the Motor Vehicle Department, right? In the countries with low organ donation, the form says, if you wish to participate in the organ donation program, check this box. People don't check the box, so they don't participate in the organ donation program. In the other countries that have a very high population of people that are organ donors, the form is a little bit different. The form says, if you do not want to participate in the organ donation program, check the box below. Again, people don't uh, check the box, right? Uh, but now they do participate in the program. So it comes down to checking the box. The first, the first paper there says, if you want to participate in the program, check the box. People don't check the box, so they don't participate in the program. In the other countries, it says, if you do not want to participate in the program, check the box. Again, people don't check the box, but now they are automatically enrolled in the organ donation program. So, you know, Dan Ariely says that uh, if we have a choice between doing nothing and doing something, we're usually going to select to do nothing, right? Because we usually choose the path with least friction, right? If we have a choice between doing nothing or doing something, we're typically going to choose to do nothing. So if you want to achieve change in your life, don't only think about the motivators. It is important, so you have to be motivated, but don't, don't only think about the fuel, don't only think about how you can maximize fuel, which is motivation. I encourage you now to start thinking about how you can reduce friction. What is getting in the way of you achieving your goals? You're motivated to do it. You want to do it. Every New Year's, you have the same resolutions. Every conversation, you, you talk about the same topic. You want to lose weight. You want to exercise. You want to do this. You want to do that. So the motivation is there. The question is, what's causing the friction? What's getting in the way? Let me give you a stupid example. I want to eat healthier. I need to eat healthier. I know I do, right? I need to have a diet that's at least partially vegetarian, et cetera, et cetera. Less carbs, less sugars. You, you know the deal, right? But when I get up to eat, I open my fridge. There, you know, I usually don't have a lot of healthy stuff in there because when I go grocery uh, shopping, you know, we're all creatures of habit. When I go to the store to buy groceries, I typically buy the same things that I usually buy, which is high carb, high sugar, blah, blah, blah. So now at home, that's the stuff that I have. So when I want to, you know, eat something healthy, I don't have anything healthy at hand. Hence the friction, even though I'm motivated to do it, now I am encountering obstacles. There's some friction. So then I don't eat healthy. So I need to get into the habit when I go to the store grocery shopping, I need to, at that moment, purchase stuff that is healthier. Then at home, I'm going to have, have healthy stuff when I open the fridge, right? Which is going to make it easier for me to achieve my goal of eating healthy. I know, I know, I know. It's a stupid example, but I want you to start thinking about this. It's not just about motivation. It's not just about increasing fuel. It's about friction. 
It's about reducing friction. What's getting in the way of you getting to the gym? What's getting in the way of you eating healthy? What's getting in the way of you doing more of what you want to do or you doing less of what you want to, you know, do less of? <laughs> uh, you, you, you get what I'm saying, right? So maximize fuel, minimize friction. At least I hope you're thinking about change with a little different perspective, not only motivation, but now friction. I truly hope this helps. Hey guys, I'm coming to the end of one more episode. All right. Um, I wish you the best, but always remember, be good and do good. And I'll see you next time in another episode of Chronicles of a Psychology Professor.